only are transitions an interesting thing, but disruptions, right? Uh, disruptions used to universally be a bad thing in the world. If something was disrupted, it was knocked off balance. It, was, uh, it went from being um, in, in accord or in harmony to being uh, disrupted. And you very much had the idea that disruption was not something you wanted to experience, uh, such that you would say things were going great until a massive disruption occurred and turned everything upside down. And now nothing is the way we expected it to be. We're having to adjust stuff and try and get it back to normal. Um, but, but in the world that we live in today, disruption has come to mean something else, especially in the business world. And we talked about this a little bit earlier this year, but uh, you know, you used to have businesses that desired adaptation or evolution, where they would want to have minor changes that would give them massive advantages. And so you could take something that you've done for a long time and, and tweak something about it. Uh, so like a business adaptation or evolution would be to go from Blockbuster, where you had to go to the store and actually walk through all the aisles and find the movie you wanted, uh, to all of a sudden you could go to Redbox. You remember Redbox? You still see those every now and then. In Redbox, you didn't have to go to a store. It was just on the way to Walgreens, or there's still some in Walmart lobbies. Uh, and you could go up to the screen and just scroll through what you wanted and then punch it in, and it would spit out the DVD you wanted. And in a couple days, you could take it back to any Redbox. You didn't even have to go back to the one where you got it from, unlike Blockbuster. Well, at the end of the day, that was an adaptation of an old business model. Disruption is when a company comes along and says, we're going to let you watch any TV show or movie that you want without leaving your living room. Just watch it over the internet. Uh, we won't even charge you per movie. We'll just charge you a monthly fee. When Netflix does that, Blockbuster closes. That's what disruption does to an industry. And there's a number of uh, industries and, and areas of the business world that have gone through these levels of disruptive change in the past couple of years. Uh, you can ask Blockbuster how it feels about Netflix. Um, you can go and, uh, and, you know, Walmart improves and adapts on, on traditional stores and general stores by adding groceries to the same building. But then Amazon comes along and says, uh, what do you want? We'll just deliver it to your house in a day. Uh, that's disruption. Walmart was evolution. Uh, Amazon was disruption. And so all these, uh, the world that we live in, you know, taxi drivers, uh, if you still drive a yellow cab and you're not driving an Uber, you've been disrupted. Business is not the way that it used to be. Your monopoly has been broken and it's you know, drastically changing how you do business. And so disruption has come to mean a total shakeup in how an industry functions. And it's not just a, an improvement or a tweaking of the system. It's where things become so radically different that you have to think about things so differently that up might feel like down and left might feel like right. And, and you're just kind of going, boy, this does not feel like we get to follow the traditional rules that make everything work the way we think it ought to be working. And the thing that I think is important for us to realize is that when we come to moments where the world is going through disruption, that, that there's two kinds of groups. There's those groups that reject it and say, no, we don't want to be disrupted. And those groups tend to be reduced in their influence and in their market strength and their power, uh, blockbuster, okay? Uh, and then there's those who realize that disruption is an opportunity. That there is in this moment and in the moments to come an opportunity for us to learn what's changing and figure out how to do what we need to do, keeping our goals but finding new and ever-increasingly uh, innovative ways to operate in a new environment. 
2020, for whatever you think this last year has been, has been a global disruption. We live in a world where nothing is the same today as it was a year ago. Um, nothing's the same. There's things that are the same, but, but things have massively challenged us to think differently. There's no doubt there's been a, a global disruption. And we have a choice. We can reject it. And, and there's a couple different ways that we tend to want to reject this kind of change in, in the world that we live in. And the first one uh, is that we go to default mode, is that instead of going into a place of innovation and saying, how do we do new things and old things in new ways? And how do we keep our goals, but realize that it's a different kind of environment that we're trying to achieve them in. Maybe we need to change our processes. We can go to default mode. And what default mode does is it says, let us simulate as best we can the old things in the old ways. And let us just try and, and feel as comfortable we can even in this moment of discomfort. And there's a real desire and tendency to be tempted back into default mode, trying to simulate um, normal. One of my favorite if you think about Christian uh, ministry in the church, and, and we're doing some of this, it's not that it's, I'm not being very critical of this. Uh, you know, we know that right now there's a challenge to singing in rooms that are inside. And so we're using uh, technology to simulate congregational worship, and it is congregational worship, it's just pre-recorded. Uh, that's a default mode instinct. Let us try and create what is valuable to us and is meaningful to us in a way that lets us feel safer in this challenging moment. That's a good thing to do. Uh, but if we were going to be in this situation for 10 years, well, that's not gonna be good enough, is it? We would need to kind of figure out a different way to be doing uh, worship and praise uh, that allows us to safely give full voice in our worship to God. We'd have to figure that out. I don't have any of these answers today. I'm just kind of giving you an answer, a, an example of what we're talking about. One of the other instincts is not just to go into default mode, but is to go into maintenance mode where you just start to panic and you just look at what's breaking and what's not working and you just try and, and, and fix all the problems as fast as they're coming at you. And I, anytime I think about this, I think about uh, when I was a kid, there was a, a, a video series that imagined what it would be like if kids went back in time uh, to, the, to Noah's Ark. And there's, it's an animated cartoon series. And there's this animated kid who's there, and he's in the ark, uh, and they're imagining what it would be like to be in that place. And all of a sudden, there starts being holes popping through the outside of the boat. And the kid is panicking. And so he, he just sticks his finger in one hole, and he sticks his finger in another hole, and now he's got a toe in one, I think his nose is going in another one, and, and there's just still more holes, and so he starts yelling at the monkey that's over there. Now the monkey is jumping over there, and, and I'll tell you, there have been times this year that that's felt like my life. You know, where's the monkey that can help plug the holes? Because that's the strategy that might get me through today, is a hole-plugging monkey. That's maintenance mode. You can do it for a while, but you can't do it forever. It's exhausting, and it doesn't create opportunities for building. There's a story of Nehemiah in the Old Testament where, where Nehemiah calls on the people. He says, listen, our enemies are all around us. The walls are deteriorated. I need you to have a sword in one hand and a hammer in the other. And, and they were trying to rebuild the walls so that the walls could be secure enough that they could then pull back and actually relax and rest and be at home and recover. And so there's a time and a season where you have your hammer and your sword, you're just putting your finger in every hole you can trying to get by in hopes that you come to a new stability. 
you can do that, but if you're stuck in disruption for too long, it's unsustainable to stay in that, that place. Another one of the modes is emotional mode. And I, boy, I tell you, we've all been here at least once this year where we fall into anxiety or fear or stress or depression, where we fall into uh, anger and we just get really emotional in our response. And the most real thing in the world is not the challenges that are ahead of us. It is how I feel about them right now. I don't like how I feel and maybe I'll go tell someone about it. Um, in a way that is always productive and constructive, uh, that we take our depression or anger uh, and give it voice, uh, usually as a weapon on someone else. Okay, that's not ideal, and it is okay to have feelings. You should feel happy when good things happen. You should feel bad when bad things happen, but if you get stuck in this place for too long, it's unsustainable. And then the fourth kind of mode or stance that we can fall into uh, is nostalgia mode. It's nostalgia. And nostalgia is, uh, there's a good side of nostalgia, which is where you remember the blessings and things that you're thankful about in your past. Uh, one of my favorite songs asks the question of, uh, what if we had known then that we were living in the good old days? Because uh, we know it now, and we didn't know it then, and, and what if we had imagined then that we were living in the good old days? And that's a beautiful question that comes out of a place of nostalgia. However, there's a dark side to nostalgia, which is where when things get difficult and tough as Israel's leaving Egypt and going towards the promised land, that sometimes they go up to Moses and they say, we don't like how hard things are. Well, things were better back in Egypt when we were slaves to that Pharaoh guy. Well, that's nonsense. That's the nonsense, false lie side of nostalgia, that we get this, this memory of the past that is glamorizing in ways that aren't even historically or emotionally accurate. That kind of nostalgia leads us to say things like, I just can't wait till things get really good back the way they were. Because if they can just get back to the way they were, we're going to be in great shape. It would be easy for us as a church to be like, I just want to go back to the months before this global pandemic mess of a year started. And then I remember that in those sermons leading up to that, we talked about how the church in the United States is in trouble and in a state of decline and the numbers are shrinking and that we need to come up with new ways to do old and meaningful eternal things. And you kind of go, oh, that's right. We were already needing to move to a different place where God wanted us to go, and yet we have this desire to go back to the way things were, even though then we knew we needed to get up and move to where God was leading. And so nostalgia and all of these different things can drive us backwards when God is calling us forwards. So today I want to talk a little bit about what it means to be called forward and to not shrink back when God puts opportunities in front of us. And the first thing that you need to know is that, that really this idea came to me um, eight days ago as Lee Matthews and I were walking out at Martin Nature Park having kind of conversations about church and ministry. And, uh, you know, Lee's been doing tailgate church out in the parking lot on Sunday mornings during the 10 o'clock service. So we stream it online. He gets it to his phone. He broadcasts it over his speakers to a bunch of people sitting in chairs. And I love that. In a world that has lots of challenges... That's a disruptive solution or an adaptation, whichever, however you want to think about that. But it's innovative to think about how can we do ministry in different ways. 
And I was talking to him about it. He says, there's something incredibly powerful about when you hear a sermon that's talking about lost people and then you see a car drive by and you think that person probably won't go to church this week. When you're sitting outside and you're talking about the world that's around us, our neighborhoods and our communities, that we need to be a force for good in them to sit there and look at those actual houses where our neighbors live and to wonder, should I be actually going to them? He said, it's occurred to me that as, as I've listened to sermons inside of walls under roofs of church buildings my whole life, is that it often allows me um, to reduce the call of ministry to what happens in those walls. And thinking about God and faith and community outside of the building reminds me in a physical way that, that ministry doesn't always happen in here. In fact, some of the best ministries God's ever done happen when disciples go into all the world preaching and teaching the gospel. And it made me think, man, what, what an interesting idea that, that Lee, just by being uh, 150 yards from where I am when I'm preaching, experiences sermons and worship in a different way just by changing his context. That he begins to see in the world around him opportunities that God is placing in front of him. A lost person might be in that car. An opportunity for ministry might be down this street. When I think about the creation that God has placed here to bless me with, I can hear the birds and see the clouds. And it grounds ministry in the world and not in the pew. And to think about that made me realize that we need that kind of reminder that God is calling us not to church attendance, but to kingdom involvement. And that if we're going to be involved in the kingdom, we need to begin by seeing the opportunities that are around us all the time. See the opportunities that are around us all the time. And we need to realize that God has given us the gifts and the tools to do what needs to be done. So in Romans chapter 12, Paul is writing to the church uh, in Rome. If you want to turn over there to Romans 12, starting in verse 6, Paul writes, We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. And it's a list of spiritual gifts, but what I want to offer you is this, is that whatever God has given you that is a talent or ability, he's given it to you so that you can use it for his good kingdom purposes. And if he gives you something and calls you to use it, if he places the opportunity in front of you and he's given you the gift to do it and you aren't doing it, what are you doing wrong? What's keeping you from doing what God desires for you to do? We need to understand and have an inventory of our spiritual gifts so that when the opportunity comes, we know that it's our obligation, our job, our moment to do what God would have us to do. And we need to understand our, our resources that have been given to us as being on loan from God. We need to understand that God has given us 
Whether it's time or talents or treasure, God has given you something in abundance so that you can use it for his purpose. And we know this because of Jesus' teaching in the parable of the talents. The parable of the talents where, uh, where Jesus says, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then they went on his journey, then he went on his journey. And the man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put the money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. The man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid. I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I've not sown and gather where I've not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags for whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what they have will be taken away from them. Throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What has God entrusted to us while he's gone to grow his kingdom? What has God given to you that you can use even in this environment, even with your limited uh, opportunities to grow his kingdom? And this question is so important. And I I wanna add here, this this isn't a financial growth strategy. I think it's important that we know that at the beginning of the story, the gold that the master gives to his servant is entrusted to them, but it's still the master's wealth. And at the end, when he says, go give it to the one who has 10 bags of gold, it's not so that that person can now own 11 bags of gold. That is still the master's 11 bags. He's just using it for the benefit of the master and the master's kingdom. And we know that that's true because he doesn't say, take the 10 bags and make them yours. You are now wealthier than you ever imagined. What he says is, you may now share in your master's happiness. And the idea is that God gives us resources that he intends for us to not bury in the ground of our life, to not bury in the privacy and secrecy of our own isolations, but that God gives us resources so that we would be willing to use them for the benefit of him and his kingdom, that his purposes might be advanced in the world. And that if we do that, then we're invited to join in his happiness in his blessings, in his kingdom. 
but to the servant who is fearful of God and afraid of his vindictiveness and who buries it in the ground so that he can give back to God exactly what was entrusted to him and no more. The master says, get out, get out of here. You've got no part in this. And we've got to be willing to look around at the world and see the opportunities that exist outside of these walls. And we have to be willing to be aware that God has given us the gifts to do the things that he's placing in front of us. And that he's given us the resources that are his to use for his purposes so that we can share in the happiness that comes from being part of his people and his family. And the idea is that in, in Acts chapter 20, when Paul has come to the end of his ministry and he's meeting with the, the church leaders from Ephesus, this is the passage that was read earlier. Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 22, he talks about how he was compelled from the Spirit and he was taken from, to prison and hardships, but he considers his life worth nothing because his only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given him the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Paul saw people that needed to hear the gospel. Paul knew that he was spiritually gifted to be an evangelist. Paul knew that he had been given the resources, even funding from Barnabas and, and the, all of the things that he needed to be able to go and to do the work of proclaiming the gospel to everyone who needed to hear it. And that may not be your spiritual gift. I don't mean to say that every single one of us needs to become an evangelist. What I mean is that we need to see opportunities, have an awareness of our unique spiritual gifts God's given us, and the resources that we have that others might not have. And it's out of that place that we then are able to do what Paul did and pour ourselves out with our gifts in these kingdom moments and opportunities so that we can say this. Now, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom, will ever see me again. He's come to the end of his life. He's going to Jerusalem. He thinks to be killed. God ends up calling him to a season of being involved in um, testifying to world leaders and going to Rome. But he thinks he's going to Jerusalem to die when he says this. I know that none among you will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. New Revised Standard Version says, I have never shrunk back from proclaiming to you the entire will of God. Never shrunk back. And that's the challenge that I want to give to you today. Is are you seeing the opportunities that God is putting in front of you? Are you aware of your spiritual gifts? Do you think about the resources that you have as being God's on loan to you to use for him until you give them back and he just welcomes you into his kingdom? Do you think about how at the end of your life you want to be able to say, I am innocent of the blood of anyone else because I have never shrunk back from the call of the gospel. I've never shrunk back from opportunities. I've never shrunk back from my gifts. I've never shrunk back from using the resources God's entrusted me with. I have stepped forward and grown into this and every moment for the sake of Jesus Christ and the advancement of the good news of his crucifixion and resurrection. That's the challenge, is that we're always stepping forward and never shrinking back.